When I was in college, I had one particular professor three different times, not because I failed his class twice, but because he taught a subject that was taught over three semesters. And I tried after the first semester to avoid having him the second two times, but because a computer did the scheduling, it always overruled my attempts to avoid him, and so I have ended up in his class again and again. When you have a professor that many times, you learn his habits, and one of this professor's habits I didn't need three semesters to learn. It was obvious after a few weeks, um, sort of how he operated. Being a human being, he did certain things the same way, just like we all do. We're all creatures of habit to some degree, and this particular professor was someone who always showed up for class either right as the bell was ringing or right afterward, and so he was not someone typically who was waiting in the classroom for us when we arrived for class. Usually it was the other way around. We would show up for class and wait for the bell to ring and wait for him to show up. And so every now and then, when I would walk into his class, I would be startled to see him sitting at the desk in the front of the room because that wasn't his usual way. And after that happened a few times, I learned that the only time he showed up before me in class, the only time he ever showed up before the bell was when he was going to give us a pop quiz over the reading that had been assigned the night before, or not the night before, but for that class period. And so as soon as I walked in, if he wasn't there, I knew we were fine. If he was there, I usually felt like I was in trouble, not because I hadn't read the material I had, but I hadn't, I'd read it, you know, I'd like run my eyes over the words and thought about its meaning, but I hadn't really digested it in a way that I could answer questions about it from a knowing expert in the material. And so watching the change in his behavior, him showing up early, was a clue that I was about to be tested about my knowledge. Tests and quizzes are no fun. At least I never found them to be. And I think most students would agree with that, but they are helpful. They reveal what you've actually learned in distinction from what you think you may already know. I don't know if this has happened to you, but it happened to me more than once in my academic career where I felt like I really knew a subject until I was tested on it. And the test revealed the gaps in my knowledge, the lack of comprehensive understanding of the material that I was being tested over. Tests reveal what's actually going on with you, not what you think you've actually learned. And every student gets tested on his or her knowledge of a subject in school so that what he or she knows and doesn't know is evident both to the student, hopefully, and certainly to the teacher. And just as every student faces faces tests in school, So we who live in this world face tests of various kinds in life. Testing doesn't end. When school ends, it just changes its form. It changes its shape. Most tests in life after school is over are unannounced. They're like pop quizzes in that they come at us when we are not expecting them and often when we feel unprepared. The same is true in our personal life and in our walk with God, in our spiritual life. 
Just as every student faces tests in life, and every human being faces tests of some sort in life, so it is with followers of Jesus Christ. Every disciple of Jesus Christ will face tests in life, and those tests will be tests of faith. Every disciple of Jesus Christ will face tests of faith in their life. And in our passage for this morning, Jesus introduced to us and to his immediate disciples, the twelve, the fact that their faith is about to undergo a test. Now remember the setting in which the passage that I read earlier and that we'll look at together now comes to us in. This is the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. It's what's called the Passion Week. And Christ has entered Jerusalem with great fanfare on what we call Palm Sunday, where people came out and waved palm branches and put their outer garments on the ground as he rode on a colt into the city of Jerusalem, and they yelled, Hosanna, and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Christ, after entering the city of Jerusalem, cleansed the temple and began teaching there day after day, the Bible says. He had this habit of going to the temple and teaching authoritatively all day and then retiring at night to the Mount of Olives where he spent the night. And now toward the end of that Passion Week, the time has come for the Passover feast, the very reason that Jesus and his disciples and so many, other from around, so many others from around Israel were in Jerusalem in the first place. They, were, they came there for this Passover festival. And the night has come when they will celebrate this Passover feast. And Jesus dispatched two of his disciples and told them where to find a place for the feast and commanded them to prepare for the feast. And in the passage that we looked at last Sunday, they observed the Passover meal together. And Christ used the unleavened bread, one of the um, parts of the meal of the Passover feast, and said, this represents my body, which is given for you. And he used the wine and one of the cups of the Passover meal to say, this cup represents my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. And then he announced to the disciples that one of them would betray him. One of them would conspire with his enemies to find him in a private place so that he could be arrested and tried and crucified. And the disciples began by saying, is it I, Lord, is it I? But then they're thinking about which one of them might betray them, morphed into a discussion about which one of them is the greatest. And in our last message last Sunday, we looked at that passage, how the disciples began by questioning whether they would be the one to betray Jesus and suddenly began arguing about which one of them was the strongest in his faith, which one of them was the most committed disciple, which one of them would never betray Jesus. And Jesus uses the occasion of their argument about which one is the greatest, not only to teach them about the meaning of true greatness, but to prepare them for a test of faith that they are about to experience. Jesus singles out the leader of his clan. It's, he's not a designated leader exactly, but he became the informal leader of the disciples because of his strength of personality and his outspoken nature, Simon Peter. 
a fisherman from Galilee whom Jesus called and commanded to follow him and who did follow him for three years and stood with him through the tests that Jesus referred to in our previous passage. Jesus singles him out now in our passage in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And he calls him by his old name, his, his name that he usually didn't use. He usually calls him Peter, but here he calls him Simon. And he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In these words, Jesus introduces the topic of conversation for the next several verses and the topic of our message for this morning. He tells the disciples that even though they think there's an argument about which one of them is the greatest disciple, which one of them is the strongest follower of his, that the truth of the matter is all of them are going to have their faith tested. And like a student who thinks he knows the material until the pop quiz arrives or until the test shows up and their ignorance is exposed, Jesus tells the disciples, your faith isn't as strong as you think it is. You're not as solid as you pretend to be. One of you may be greater than others, but none of you is really outstanding in this area. And Jesus broadens the look, not just from Simon Peter. He starts by talking to him, but he tells him that this test of faith is going to fall on all of them, all of the 12 disciples who follow Jesus. Verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And the phrase all of you is a translation in our English that helps us to understand that there's a plural uh, pronoun used here. In the original Greek, Jesus uses a plural pronoun. He says, you will, all of you, or all you all, okay, to borrow um, a phrase from some dialects of English that you're familiar with, that this is a plurality of testing that's going on. And not these, even though Jesus singles out Simon Peter by name, he's saying, you're not the only one who's going to be tested. You're not the only one who's going to be subjected to this pop quiz of your faith. In fact, all 12 of you, Judas is gone, but the rest of them, he's already faced his test. Now the 11 are going to face a test, he tells them. And the truth of the matter is that the disciples of Jesus weren't the only ones whose faith was tested. We can see from multiple scriptures that this is God's pattern in working with followers of of his, followers of Jesus Christ. That it is not the exception for us as followers of Jesus to face tests of faith. It's the norm that all followers of Jesus Christ, every disciple of Jesus Christ, will face tests of faith. In verse 31, Jesus tells us the source of these tests. When he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Here Jesus tells us, that these tests that we face in our lives come from Satan. They are satanic attacks against us. Not satanic in the sense that they involve some kind of supernatural power that is unusual in our lives, but rather that whatever test of faith we experience 
However subtle and how normal it might seem to everyday life was actually a plotted attack against our faith by the enemy of God. By someone who has made it his mission to defeat God and to prevent his will from happening and to keep as many people as possible from following God and finding salvation in his grace. That person who is a real person, he's not a force and he's not an idea. He is a person, a spirit being. The enemy of God, that person is the one who brings tests of faith into our lives. Just as Job became the subject of a test of faith in his life in the Old Testament book of Job because Satan wanted God's protection removed from Job so that Job's faith could be tested. So Jesus says in this passage that the test of faith that Simon Peter and the other disciples would face was going to be brought upon them by a direct satanic attack, that it was the enemy of God himself who would seek to have their faith tested. And yet, even though Satan is the source of these tests, he does not bring them into our lives independently. All throughout these studies that we've had of the life of Christ, certainly, but even in this Passion Week that we've looked at for many Sundays in a row, we've seen the sovereign working of God in the life of Jesus. That there were no accidents, no random events, that nothing came as a surprise to Christ, but in fact, God was working out His plan, even as Christ prepared to face the cross. And although Jesus tells Simon that the test of faith that he and the other disciples will face is going to be brought to them by Satan himself, God's enemy, he tells them and us also that these tests are allowed by our sovereign God. Look again at verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Why would he need to ask And whom is he asking? The answer, of course, is God. God is sovereign over all things that happen. God is sovereign over all of the events of your life. And nothing can happen to you outside of the sovereign will of God. And God's will works in multiple ways, far more than I can get into here. But the Bible says somehow in what we call the providential working of God, the providence of God, God directs things to happen or God allows things to happen that ultimately lead us to his will, that ultimately are foreordained by him, even if they are not directly caused by him. And although Satan is the cause of our faith being tested, he does not bring those tests upon us outside of the sovereign will of God. Instead, only by God's permission do you face tests of faith in your life. Just like I think most students in school dislike being tested, we find the process of preparing and taking tests unpleasant. Certainly in life and definitely in the Christian life, testing is never fun. It's never enjoyable on its face. It's never something we look forward to. It's always something difficult. And yet I think it's helpful to know that even though testing is unpleasant, that whatever test you faced in your life, 
Whatever problem has come your way, whatever's led you to a moment in life of questioning God, in whatever way you've questioned God, was not brought to your life outside of the sovereign will of God, but rather it came as part of God's will for your life, as part of what God has ordained for you to experience. Satan brings tests into our lives, but only under the sovereign allowance of God. And Jesus tells Peter, that all the disciples will have their faith tested because God is allowing it. Satan has asked and he's received permission to test their faith. And what is the goal of this testing? Well, God has a different goal than Satan does. This is how God's sovereign working works. God works his will, even though it's often in distinction from and difference to whatever Satan or even we would will for our lives. But here, Jesus focuses on what Satan wants out of the testing, not necessarily what God wants out of it. And Satan's goal in that testing is indicated to us also in verse 31, when it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. That phrase, to sift all of you as wheat, gives us a clue that's filled in with more information in the next verse, which I'll get to in a moment. But that phrase that Satan is asked to sift you as wheat tells us what the goal of Satan's testing is, what he wants out of it, what it's designed to do, and that is to separate you from your faith. These tests of faith are designed to separate you from your faith in Jesus Christ. That phrase, to sift as wheat, refers to what is called the winnowing process. I'm neither a farmer nor a gardener. And I don't play one on television. And so anytime issues of agriculture or animal husbandry or even engineering or metallurgy or many subjects come up in the scripture, I feel a sense of fear about speaking about them. And uh, this is certainly the case today, but um, I, I have attended Sunday school in my life and I have heard people talk about the winnowing process. And so to the extent that they're correct, I will tell you that and you may already know that the winnowing process is the part of which where a farmer removes the inedible part of a plant that protects that plant from the edible part of it, all right? The inedible part has a purpose. It protects the plant, but it can't be eaten. It can't be digested. It can't be cooked into dishes that people can eat. And so before the good stuff can be harvested and used, it has to be separated from the bad stuff. And that's what sifting as wheat means. An image that is probably more familiar to us is if you've ever bought fresh ears of corn at the end of the summer and you've shucked that corn, you've pulled off the part that covers the ear of corn, that's very similar to what Jesus is saying here when he says Satan wants to sift you as wheat. And the point of the image is a separation. You separate the bad part from the good. When Jesus says in verse 31 that the goal of Satan's test is to sift the disciples as wheat, what he's saying is not that he wants to separate the good disciples from the bad disciples. That's already happened. That happened when Judas left. 
No, what Satan wants to do when he sifts disciples as wheat is to separate us from our faith. He wants us to follow the same trajectory that Judas followed. He wants us to deny Christ. He wants us to walk away from our faith. He wants us to stop believing and stop obeying Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we see that in the next verse where it says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That phrase that your faith may not fail fills in the meaning of what sift you as wheat means. It means that Satan's testing is designed to separate you from Jesus Christ, to separate you from your faith in him, to get you to deny who Jesus is. That's a scary thing. To think about the enemy of God who's been around for as long, almost as long as creation has existed, one of God's first creations. Someone who has interacted with and observed millions of people all around the world. And he's seen human tendencies. And he knows not only what human beings are weak what areas we're weak in, but he knows what areas you're weak in. He's seen where you've succumbed to temptation before. He's seen your moments of questioning, and he can tailor the tests to your individual tastes and weaknesses. That's a terrifying thought. To know that every believer in Jesus Christ, and other passages tell us this isn't just for these 12 disciples, but that this is God's routine way, that God allows testing to come into our lives. And that testing is directed by Satan, and it's very strategic, almost surgical in its precision, in order to try to separate you from your faith in Jesus Christ. The terrifying prospect. And so what do we do about it? Well, we could try to avoid the test, like maybe I would not go into that classroom when I saw the professor sitting in the front knowing that it was a pop quiz day. We could try to avoid the testing, but the truth is we never know when it's going to happen to us. We find ourselves in it before we realize what's going on. It's really not possible to avoid the tests. And so then what? What do we have? Well, the answer is we have a choice. When we face tests of faith as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a choice. And that choice is outlined for us in verses 32 through 38. Look with me, please, at verse 32 where Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon. And the goal of my prayer is that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter has learned some things along the way, but he hasn't learned everything. One thing he hasn't learned is to trust Jesus more than his own bravado and self-confidence. And so he pushes back on what Jesus says in verse 33. This man, probably who started the discussion about which one of us is the greatest, says to Jesus in verse 33, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. This is why I'm the greatest of the disciples, because I'll never abandon you, Jesus. Bring it on. Arrest prison, death, it doesn't matter. I'll be with you every step of the way, Jesus. That's how Simon felt about his faith. And Jesus said to him in verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me that you know me. Now think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying before the rooster, this is before the sun comes up the next morning. That's the image of the rooster crowing. Before the sun comes up the next morning, Jesus isn't saying you'll have 
backtracked on being a disciple. You'll have quit being a disciple. You'll write out, I resign as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says, you'll deny even knowing who I am. You'll act like you've never seen me before. You'll act like we've never spoken. You'll act like this meal that we just enjoyed never happened, and that I have never washed your feet, and that you haven't followed me everywhere I've gone for the past three years. Well, this is too much for Peter to take. And so in other passages, we know that Peter pushes back on this and, and says, it's not going to happen, Jesus. But, but Christ affirms to Peter that before that day, before the sun comes up that day, he will deny the Lord. And then Jesus says this, and this looks like a strange turn of events, but it's not. We need to understand the context in order to understand what comes next. Verse 35 says, Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, as it is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. In these words, although it's not immediately obvious in our reading of it, but in these words, Jesus offers a choice to us. And he tells us that when we face moments of testing, where Satan tries to separate us from our faith, we have a choice. And the choice is a pretty simple one. The first choice we have is we can turn to God. We can choose to come to God for help. And Jesus indicates this. In verse 32, he says, But I have prayed for you, Simon. And Peter didn't have to do anything to cause Christ to pray for him. He didn't have to turn to God at this particular moment in his life. But the indication that Christ is making here is that if you turn to me, you will find my grace for this trial. You will find my assistance in this trial. I will help you through this trial. And Jesus goes on in verse 33 to offer even more to him. Verse uh, 32, I mean. He says, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for your faith not to fail. But even if you don't do well on this test, maybe you don't get an F on it. But if you get a D minus, which he will... Jesus says, come to me, turn back, change your mind, and you will find my grace for you there. But the grace of God is also indicated in verse 35, so let's go forward to that. Because we can turn to God in our, in our tests of faith. And one of the ways that we turn to God is indicated in verse 35, where it says, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Now, why does Jesus bring this up now? What Jesus is talking about here happened way back in Luke chapter 10. And we looked at that passage about two and a half years ago. And so I'm sure you remember with clear, lucid detail <laughs> what Jesus did and said in Luke chapter 10. But in case you don't, let me just remind you that in Luke chapter 10, Jesus called the 72 disciples. So Jesus had these rings of disciples. He had three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He had the 12. And then he had this group of 72 disciples. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus called these 72 disciples to himself. And he said, I'm sending you out 
to villages and towns and cities all over this area we call Galilee, the northern part of Israel, not where Jesus is now, but where he spent most of his ministry. He says, I'm sending you out to all these villages, these towns, these cities. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to them myself. But I want you to go ahead of me. And I want you to do ministry. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says, I don't want you to take anything with you. Don't go home and get your overnight bag. Don't get an extra pair of sandals for yourself. Don't grab your toothbrush, even though they didn't have those. And I don't want you to call ahead and try to find a place to stay in these towns and villages. He said, I just want you to go. Get in your car with whatever gas you have and just go. And I'll show up there, not personally, but he says, you'll, you'll notice that I provide for you. Somebody will show up who will give you a place to stay. You'll have all of your meals provided for you. Your sandals won't wear out. You'll be fine. I'm sending you out with nothing. That's what he told them in Luke chapter 10. Now Jesus refers back to that. And he says to them in verse 35, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandal, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. What is the point of this? The point is the disciples have lived in faith before. They've put their entire lives on the line with Jesus before. They've gone places without Jesus and seen Jesus provide for them. They know what it's like to walk by faith and to trust God to provide for them. And the implication of this is, this is what we should do in trials. That in trials, we have a choice. We can either come to God for grace and help in the trials, and we can reflect on times when God has provided for us in the past. That's the one choice we have. But we also have another choice in trials, and that is we can turn to our own resources. The disciples are going to find out what life on their own is like. That's part of the test that they're going to experience. Jesus is physically going to be taken away from them. And these disciples who have just been arguing about which one is the greatest, and Simon Peter, who has confidently uh, proclaimed to Jesus Christ, I will never deny you. I'll go with you to prison and to death. He's going to find out what life on his own is like. And this is all part of the plan of God. It's all part of what God wants for them. God exposes the disciples to an area where they either need to turn to him and ask for his provision and find his provision for them, or they're on their own with their own resources. And so Jesus tells them, if you're going to do this on your own resources, you better prepare. Notice what verse 36 says. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, what's the point of this? Commentators don't really know. They, they just say, well, Jesus is telling them to, to prepare. But yeah, I get that. But why? Why does Christ bring this up here? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to go out in a direction that commentators that I've studied haven't gone, but I'm pretty sure I understand what's going on in the passage. I think Jesus is trying to set up this choice for the disciples. He's trying to tell them, you know what it's like to come to me when you have a need. Because you've done it before. You've gone to these villages and you've been out there waiting for nothing but my provision for you. And you've seen how I provided again and again. He even asked them, did you lack anything? And they said, nope, nothing. Everything we needed was provided for us. That was a lesson. But in this trial, they're not going to turn to God. 
They're going to think, and they already think it. They've already been saying, which one of us is the greatest? I'm the greatest. Peter's already saying, I'll go with you no matter what. They already are, they've already moved the locus of dependence from Christ to themselves. And so Jesus is saying, okay, if that's how you're going to go, if you're going to try to take this trial on by yourself, you better get some stuff prepared. And what does he tell them to prepare? Verse 36, now if you have a purse, that's where you keep your money, take it. You might need to buy your way out of this. And also a bag. This is where you keep your clothes. And so if you need, you're going to need extra clothing to get through this trial, so make sure you have that. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. This is how you fight off enemies. And I was interested to learn that, because we don't really see this in the New Testament, right? But that it was pretty common for men to carry swords with them, pretty much, you know, most of the places that they went. The fact that the disciples have two of them on them kind of surprised me, but I guess it shouldn't because apparently it was common for men to carry a sword with them. And it makes sense. I mean, they didn't have a police force who was supposed to try to keep the peace and enforce the law. If someone attacked you, you were on your own. You had to use your abilities in terms of self-defense. And so, in a sense, they lived in an armed society. And as the saying, I think, goes, an armed society is a polite society. Well, that's kind of the world in which they lived. And so, it was common for men to carry swords. And Jesus, when he sent them out on their own, he didn't want them carrying a sword. He wanted them fully dependent on God. But now, if they think they're the greatest, if they think they'll go with Jesus to prison and to death, well, then they better arm themselves. Because if they're not going to look to God to show up and protect them, they got to do it on their own. The, the, the um, choice that is set up in, these, in this passage is the choice between turning to God and looking for His grace, looking for His help in the time of trials, or turning to ourselves, turning to our own resources. And there are two kinds of resources that are described in this passage. Self-confidence is one resource. This is where Peter turned. When he said in verse uh, 33, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter had great confidence in his own commitment. Peter knew that he was a loyal guy and that he had stood with his friends before. They had been in some scrapes as disciples of Jesus. There have been times when people tried to seize Jesus to put him to death. And Peter hadn't denied Jesus then. He hadn't disclaimed knowledge of who Jesus was. And so Peter has a lot of self-confidence that he'll be ready when his faith is tested, that Satan's not going to shuck him and separate him from his faith. And the same happens to us. We look at others who fall away from faith in Jesus Christ. A setback in life, the defection of someone they look up to as a leader, an unexpected diagnosis or death causes someone's, some people's faith in Jesus Christ to be shaken. You've experienced this. You've met people that you thought were deeply committed Christians who decommitted from Christ because something happened to them. It might have been a logical argument. It might have been a moral decision. It might have been some circumstance that shook them up, but you've seen it in your life. And maybe your thought is, that will never be me. There is no way I would ever renounce Jesus, no matter how bad the diagnosis was, no matter how uh, lofty and how much I look up to somebody who falls. No matter what happens to me, I'll never disclaim faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, that's a 
pretty strong indication that your confidence is here in yourself. One of the tests that God allows into our lives is to expose the source of our strength, the source of our confidence. There are times we think our faith is in God, when it's really in our own moral fiber, it's really in our own self-dedication or um, self-discipline. We think our faith is in God. Peter certainly thought his was, but really we have a lot of confidence in ourselves. The tests of faith cause us to turn somewhere for help. One of those places is to our own resources, and one of those resources is self-confidence. The other resource that we can turn to is self-sufficiency. That's what Jesus is telling them here when he tells them to prepare. When he says, get all this stuff together, he's saying, you better get your resources. You better make sure that you have the things sufficient you need to provide for yourself and to protect for yourself. If you're really going to go out there and try to face this trial on your own, and you're not going to turn to God for help and for his assistance, then you better have a lot of money in your wallet. You better have a lot of clothes in your bag, and you better be armed because you're going to face all kinds of threats in life, and so you need to have preparation that will cover all kinds of threats. And as you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, face tests of our faith, this is the temptation we're going to have. The temptation is not going to come to be, the temptation is going to be not to turn to God for grace and help and strength and stabilization of our faith. The test is going to be to turn to ourselves, to our own willpower, to our own resources, to self-confidence or self-sufficiency. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your faith will be tested. And when you face that test of faith, you have a choice. You can either turn to God or you can turn to your own resources. The implication of this passage and the, the message of it ultimately for us is to turn away from self-sufficiency and turn to God. At the end of the passage, Jesus lists off the things that they'll need, and the reason why they'll need them is described in verse 37. He says, as it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. What's Jesus talking about here? Here Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, and it's amazing that Isaiah 53 is the clearest passage in the Old Testament that describes the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ, but also his being cut off and crucified. And yet, this is the only place in the New Testament where it's quoted in this way. It's the only place in the gospel that quotes Isaiah 53. But here Jesus identifies with what is prophesied. When he says, he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is saying, a separation is about to happen. I'm about to be taken away with transgressors. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm about to be arrested and put with people who are on death row and ready to be crucified. And Jesus emphasizes, this, is, this must be fulfilled in me. He says, yes, it's reaching its fulfillment. Not only is he saying, this is my destiny in the sovereign will of God, but he's saying the time has come where this is about to happen. And the disciples, 
don't even see this. They don't even catch what Jesus is saying. Jesus has been telling them for a while that he is going to be betrayed and crucified, and they're not even seeing it. Instead, they're worried about the swords. Verse 38, the disciples said, see, Lord, here we got two swords. And Jesus said, well, that's enough. You know, he's like, they missed the point, all right? The, the point is, you don't need to prepare. You don't need self-sufficiency if your faith is in me. And yet the disciples are already in self-sufficiency mode. They've already moved to the place that a test of faith can take us if we don't turn to the Lord. And so again, the implication of this passage and the truth that we should take home, the big idea for us today is to turn to God. It's to turn to the Lord, not to your own resources, for the power to persevere when your faith is tested. And again, we touch on one of the doctrines of our faith, the the perseverance of the saints. The Bible's teaching that there are many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Some of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ follow Jesus for a time. They have the right profession of faith, and they even show evidence of faith in their life. But yet, at times in their life when they're tested, they turn away from Jesus Christ. And there are some who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who follow Jesus Christ for the entirety of their lives. No matter what faith they test, they encounter They continue to follow Jesus Christ in faith and good works throughout the entirety of their life. There may be setbacks. Peter and the disciples are about to go through a serious setback. And there are times when true followers of Christ do have weaknesses, where our faith is less than perfect. But the point of the matter is the disciples never fully decommitted from Christ. They never really turned their backs on him, as we'll see. They did persevere. But it took the test of faith to show them that their confidence was misplaced, that it was in themselves and not in God. And so the lesson for us to take from this is that when we face tests of faith in life, let's turn to the Lord instead of our own resources. And let me just develop this along a few lines from our passage. First of all, remember that Jesus is praying for you right now. This is the most comforting thing that we can know in the moment of trial. This is a truth that you should be well aware of, and that's why Jesus told Peter in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Simon. And this, So in verse 31, Jesus uses the plural. Satan wants to sift all of you as wheat. In verse 32, he goes to the singular. That's why the word Simon is here. And he says, but I prayed for you specifically, Simon, that your singular faith, your particular faith, may not fail. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible tells us that one of the ministries of Christ, the one that continues now after his resurrection and ascension to God, is that he remains interceding for us. That is, when our faith is tested, and when we fail, when we fall into sin, and when we are less than perfect in our obedience, and when we do have questions and doubts, and we don't stand up for Christ as we should, That Christ, our advocate, is standing there before God the Father saying, this one is in me. This person belongs to me. That's what the Bible says. This is the intercessory ministry of Christ. And that means as you are walking through trials right now in your life, as your faith maybe feels like it's on shaky ground, take comfort in the fact and know and remember that Christ is praying for you right in the darkness of this moment. Let me show you a few scriptures that talk about this. 
One is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, which says, but because Jesus lives forever, he's risen from the dead, and now he's the perfect and final high priest. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you understand that part of the reason why your faith ultimately will not fail if you're a true believer? Do you understand that one of the reasons why a true believer can persevere and will persevere throughout the rest of their lives is because Jesus is praying for you? It's not that your faith is better than someone who's, who decommits. It's that God is holding you throughout the entire process. The faith that you have, if it's a genuine faith, was a gift from God. And throughout your life, Satan would like to separate you from that faith. He would like to, to cut you off from God. But as Jesus said, no one can seize you out of my hand or my Father's hand. The reason why your faith will last for your lifetime is because Christ is interceding for you. That's what this passage shows us. That's why he is able to save us to the uttermost, completely, because he always lives to intercede for them. Romans 8.34 also talks about this ministry of Christ when it says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. No matter how dark the place of testing you are in right now may be or how dark the testing in your life becomes, turn to God remembering that He is praying for you. Now while we're in Romans 8, let me go a little further, because the Bible tells us that not only is Jesus praying for us, but that the Holy Spirit is praying for us as well in the same chapter, Romans 8. But verses 26 and 27, it says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What resources do you have available to you in the moments of testing? The biggest one is the knowledge that Jesus is praying for you. So let that hold you fast when you encounter tests of faith in your life. Second thing, remember that God, what God has done for you already. Jesus brings this up to say, look, I've already shown you that I'll provide everything you need. In verse 35, he says, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandal, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. That should have been a key piece of information that they were reminded of. They know what it's like to rely on the Lord. They've seen God come through for them in ways that, honestly, you and I really never have. The Lord's never told us to go to a place and just wait for someone to show up and give us a place to stay. Uh, at least that's never happened for me. And so God has already provided for them. What Jesus is reminding them of is 
If you're going to put your resources in yourself, you'll never have enough in that bag or that purse. The the sword is never sharp enough or long enough to fend off every enemy. But if your faith is in God, you've already seen him show up in your life. And in the moments of testing, remember what God has done for you in the past. Remember how God has provided for you, how he's answered prayers, how he's taken care of you and holds you fast in life. Third, Change your mind when your faith wavers. See, here's the thing about perseverance. At times, it looks somewhat like unbelief. What Peter is about to do doesn't look all that different from what Judas did. It it has key differences. But by disclaiming and denying Jesus Christ, denying that he even knows Jesus Christ, it looks like Peter's faith has failed. But Jesus says, no, I've prayed that your faith won't fail. You're going to have a setback in your life. But in verse 32, he says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, see, one of the key differences between Judas's failure of faith and Peter's weakness of faith is that Peter repented. Peter changed his mind. Peter turned back to the Lord after his failure. And this is one of the marks of genuine faith. And maybe you feel the accusation of Satan in your life because there have been times when your faith has been less than stellar. There have been moments when you should have owned up to being a follower of Jesus Christ and stood for Christ and yet you didn't. And maybe there are questions in your mind, do do I really belong to Jesus? The answer is, well, have you turned back to him? Have you repented? Did you come back to faith in Christ? Did you walk away finally? A true believer in Jesus Christ may have many failures, many weaknesses. We may commit many sins, but we always come back to Jesus Christ. And if you're in a place in your life where your faith, where you feel like you've almost been completely shucked, where you've almost had your faith completely separated from you, like that husk is separated from the corn, Know that Christ is praying for you and that he is ready to receive you because he died for your sins and he loves you. And if you turn back to him, you will receive his forgiveness. So change your mind when your faith wavers. And finally, I would say this. Speak truth to other believers whose faith is being tested. The end of verse 32, Jesus said, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. All of us face tests of faith, but one of the ways in which we can help each other is to help each other, to see when others are struggling or when they come to us with their struggles, we can do what we can to try to strengthen them. We can speak truth into their lives. We can pray for them. We can encourage them. And maybe you're in a place in your life where you're not facing an immediate trial. God is blessing your life, but you know others around you who are really struggling. What can you do to strengthen them? How can you bring some of the grace that God has brought into your life to bear in their life, to help them to stand strong with Jesus Christ? This is one of the means of grace that God has given to us. It's one of the ways in which we can turn to God for help is by turning to others and receiving from others assistance. All of us are going to face trials in life. This is what happens to God's people. And so, All of us need to be reminded again and again to turn to the Lord, not to our own resources, for the power to persevere when our faith is tested.